Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we'll be having a chat about the second and third voyages of James Cook a British explorer and sea captain most famous for both charting and claiming the east coast of Australia for Britain. We got across that last week, of course. We talked all about his first voyage. We talked about his earlier years as well, his uh, his enormous skill as not just a, a naval officer, but also as a navigator and surveyor. And this week, we're going to be continuing that story by talking about his second and third voyages. But let's remind ourselves of some of the stuff that we talked about last week. We talked about how this bloke was extremely good at what he did. He produced some of the most exceptional cartographic work you can imagine. He was also a man of science, sent off on scientific expeditions, greatly adding to the sum of human knowledge with the voyages that he undertook. Again, discussed that last week. We'll be talking about it again uh, this week as well. Uh, And his first voyage saw him achieve something truly incredible. He sailed all the way around the world for years and years and years he was at sea, he was at sea and he didn't lose a single crew member to scurvy. Now, this doesn't sound like much these days. Don't know how many, don't know how many people you hear of dying of scurvy today in the 21st century. But back then, it was a horrific illness that affected virtually everyone going on long-term voyages at sea. But Cook readily adopted the latest thinking on the matter that fresh fruit and veggies prevented scurvy in ships' crews. And he managed to bring back – well, no, actually, he didn't manage to bring back all of his crew because some of them died of malaria, didn't they? Yeah, no. Okay, well, he did, no one died of scurvy on his first, on his first voyage, and, and that's definitely worth something. But unfortunately, again, as we talked about in the previous episode, Cook's legacy is very heavily marred by the contributions that he made to the spread of British colonialism. Cook was the harbinger of British imperialism for many Indigenous people in Australasia and the Pacific. Uh, We'll talk about that today as well, of course. It's impossible to talk about this bloke without acknowledging the harm that he did, along with the good. So today, we'll talk about his second voyage, as he was sent once again in search for Terra Australis Incognita. Uh, We'll talk about all the adventures he had along the way there. And then we'll get across his third voyage as well, this time in search of the Northwest Passage, a voyage that, as you might already know, cost him his life. So let's get to it here. Continue the story of Captain James Cook from where we left off. Raise anchor and hoist the sails because off we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to 1771. This was the year that Cook returned from his first voyage, as you'll remember. We've already heard all about that. Cook was hailed as a celebrity for the success that he'd had on this journey. It seemed like people were pretty bloody keen to send him off once again, as it happens. The British government decided to commission Cook to sail to the South Pacific once again with the same purpose as last time, to find this seemingly mythical southern continent, Terra Australis Incognita, which was believed to exist. And Exist it does, of course, as we know today, we call it Antarctica, but back then it was only a theory, not backed up by any evidence, and on his first voyage, Cook had searched for it. He had proven that New Zealand wasn't connected to this hypothesised southern continent. He circumnavigated New Zealand, proving that it wasn't connected to anything else. But this time, the British wanted him to go even further south than New Zealand. In fact, they wanted him to go even further south than ever before, far into the frigid waters surrounding what we now know as Antarctica, and prove the existence of Terra Australis Incognita once and for all. Again, 
People didn't really have any real reason for believing that this continent should exist other than their idea that the Southern Hemisphere needed more landmass to balance out the Northern Hemisphere. It's very annoying that Antarctica does exist and sort of proves them right on some level because their theory is based on a shockingly bad scientific assumption. They are complete. Obviously, they were completely wrong about the balance bit. Only 32% of the Earth's landmass is in the Southern Hemisphere at, at the moment. Anyway, that, that number is slowly changing as all the continents shift and knock about. But look, whatever, it doesn't matter. The, the, the point is, it is it is slightly annoying that all of this shonky science about the Earth needing balance in the proportion of landmass in the Southern Hemisphere and the Northern Hemisphere, as wrong as that was, these people were still right about there being a great Southern continent way, way far down south. Anyway, whatever, we can move on. The British were determined to find this landmass, despite not obviously being 100% sure it was going to be there. Uh, And so in 1772, they sent Cook off once again, still widely celebrated as a hero, as we talked about, uh, fresh off a promotion to commander. His orders were to circumnavigate the world as far south as possible to find any parts of Terra Australis Incognita that might poke up far enough north for him to run into. Not the sort of journey that I'd be signing up for, let me tell you, sailing down into the freezing cold, but Cook was up for it. But he also had a secondary objective uh, that was given to him uh, to test the suitability of a brand new marine chronometer, the Larkham Kendall K1, uh, using this as a tool to calculate longitude. Um, We talked a little bit about marine chronometers in episode 101, The History of Clocks, and it's actually a topic that would probably be worth revisiting, uh, solving the longitude problem and all the rest of it. Anyway, K1 was part of that and Cook helped out as he could. We'll come back to his results later on. But he was put in command of the HMS Resolution, and there were significant delays in getting underway because of a bloke named Joseph Banks. You remember him from last week, the botanist. He was slated to come to originally, but he kept on making more and more outlandish demands for the voyage. He was an even bigger celebrity than Cook, and he really wanted to get his way. He had the Admiralty spend over £10,000 outfitting the ship for his needs and then decided that even that wasn't good enough and the Admiralty, Admiralty had to reverse a bunch of the work that done costing him even more money. He wanted a huge section of the ship just for himself and his scientific colleagues. He wanted total autonomy over the science that he did on the voyage. He wanted the right to tell Cook where to go and what to do. And he wanted, on top of all of this, a lot of money from the Admiralty just to be part of it all in the first place. And so by the end of it, the Admiralty just simply told him to blow it out his ass and pulled Banks from the expedition and Cook set off without him with different scientists coming along instead. As I say, Cook's ship was the uh, was called the Resolution and he was going to be accompanied by the HMS Adventure under the command of Captain Tobias Furneaux, another experienced naval officer. Furneaux was one of the first people to circumnavigate the world in both directions, quite an accomplishment, uh, although he didn't have Cook's skill as a surveyor and a cartographer, and uh, Cook was very much seen as uh, as the leading figure, the senior officer in, uh, in, in this expedition. Anyway, the voyage began on the 13th of July, 1772, when the, two sh- when the two ships set off from Plymouth in Britain and sailed south. Cook reached the southern tip of Africa at the end of October. Uh, once again, his crew in perfect health. They'd, uh, they'd been eating their veggies. He'd been making sure of that, don't you worry. Cook was actually a very strict captain when it came to things like diet and cleanliness and, and discipline aboard his ship. Um, and uh, look, hopefully his crew thanked him for it because it kept them all safe and healthy. I'll tell you this, the, the idea of dying of scurvy was was something that 
had to be in the back of sailors' minds when they went on these long voyages, and and Cook kept them safe from it. So uh, they probably owed him a better, a, a bigger debt of, debt of thanks than they realised. Anyway, from there, rather than go all the way around the the Cape of Good Hope as you would normally expect on a voyage that was uh, making its way down to the south south of Africa from Europe, Cook actually continued to sail south on towards Antarctic waters because they were making for an area where a French navigator, Jean-Baptiste Charles Bouvier de Lozier, what a name, um, claimed to have spotted land all the way back in 1739. And his claim was true as well. Bouvet Island still bears his name to this very day. But that's not what he called it. That's not what he called the land he spotted all those years ago. The primary reason that he didn't call it Bouvet Island is that he didn't prove it was an island. He wasn't able to land on it or circumnavigate it. And so he couldn't confirm that it was indeed separated from this hypothesized great southern continent that, that Cook was looking for. And so Cook was sent off to find this, uh, this stretch of land that had, been, uh, that had been found by Bouvet. And it's here that I want to tell you what Bouvet named the land that he saw. Because he wasn't sure if it was an island, he, uh, he instead called the land that he saw a cape. And he named it, this is not a joke, this name is still on maps to this very day, he named it Cape Circumcision. It is still called that today because apparently he spotted it on the same day as a Christian festival known as the Feast of the Circumcision, and I don't even want to know what that's about. Thank you very much. I don't think circumcision and feasting should ever be mentioned in the same sentence, if it's all the same to you. Anyway, it turns out that Bouvet was not just rubbish at naming things, but also rubbish at describing where he found them. He wasn't very good with maps and navigation. He he charted the location of this land that he'd found completely incorrectly, and uh, no one had found it since. And despite our mate Cook's best efforts, he couldn't find it either. It was freezing bloody cold. The entire crew were rugged up in special cold weather gear that the British provided for them. But it's still absolutely horrific for them as they're sailing here and here and there trying to find bloody Cape Circumcision. Keep a lookout for it, boys. Cook described how they were sailing through seas with great ice islands emerging out of the fog, uh, which makes sense. They were, of course, approaching the Antarctic Circle. But try as he might, he couldn't locate any actual islands. Uh, as I say, Buffet had stuffed up describing where he'd found Cape Circumcision and Cook was nowhere near it. Instead, all Cook found was fog and ice. And by January, pack ice started to surround the ship. And to our northern hemispherical listeners here, you might be thinking, well, what's he bloody doing sailing in January? Of course he's going to end up surrounded by pack ice. But I will remind you, he is in the southern hemisphere. January is the middle of summer. This is when it's supposed to be at its hottest down here. So it's an awful situation all around because he's surrounded by pack ice in the middle of summer. As soon as the weather let up, right, as soon as the pack ice retreated even a little bit, Cook presses on, starts pushing further south. The Resolution and the Adventure managed to cross over the Antarctic Circle on the 17th of January, 1773. But after that... They make very little progress. It is freezing bloody cold, bloody ice everywhere. No, thank you. Cook finally decides enough is enough. He has reached the 67th parallel south, which elsewhere in the world would actually be far enough south to hit Antarctica. But where he is south of Africa, it's no good. He is stuck in the Southern Ocean, no land in sight. 
And so he says, bugger it. Chucks at Yui, heads off to the northeast. Bugger this cold for a joke, he says, we're out of here. And as the two ships headed back to warmer climates, they actually got separated in the thick Antarctic fog. However, they had a contingency for this situation, uh, head for Queen Charlotte Sound, as it was called back then, in New Zealand. And I guess this contingency plan, heading for New Zealand, um, was designed to really incentivise these two ships to stay together, because obviously otherwise they'd have to head to New Zealand, and what a punishment that is for anyone, really. Anyway, even without the HMS Adventure, Cook is still getting on with the mission at hand. He is still searching for this fabled southern continent, but, you know, now just at a higher latitude, so he and his crew aren't freezing their nutsacks off. After sailing northeast for a while, Cook cruised due east to see if he'd bump into any land on the way. He didn't, uh, although he did dip down further south here and there just to check. He headed as low as the 61st parallel on his way to New Zealand. But eventually, Cook headed further to the north and he rocked up on the south island of New Zealand where he chilled in a place called Dusky Bay. Today it's called Dusky Sound uh, until the end of April. And then he headed up to Queen Charlotte Sound or... Totoranui, to give it its proper Maori name. And there was the adventure. And old mate Furno waiting for him as planned. They'd been there for about a week and a half. The ship set off together again, cruising around the Pacific, firstly to Tahiti, where a bloke named Oma uh, boarded the adventure and went on to become the second ever Pacific Islander to visit Europe. Remember his name because he's going to come up a little bit later on in the story, even if he's hanging out with, with Furno on the adventure for the moment, but he'll, he'll come back a bit later on. Uh, anyway, after Tahiti, the, sail, the ship sailed toward the Friendly Isles, today known as Tonga, uh, landed there for a bit, then headed back towards New Zealand. However, they were separated once again, this, uh, this time by a storm on the 22nd of November 1773, and this time they did not manage to successfully rendezvous in Totoranui again. Cook got there first. And after waiting around for a while, he waited until the 26th of November, he decided that it was time to get moving, despite the adventure not appearing. And then the adventure ended up getting to Totoranui just four days later. They didn't miss each other by much, but Furneaux found a message there on the beach buried by Cook, explaining that Cook was going to go on and explore the South Pacific for a while. Furneaux, however, he decided enough was enough. He decided to head back to Britain rather than kick about in the Pacific. He left a reply buried for Cook to find before setting off to Europe, arriving back in Britain on the 14th of July, 1774. So that's it for Furneaux. That's it for the adventure. They're out of the picture. But what about Cook? What about the resolution? There is still a fair bit of Cook's second voyage left to go here. Cook decided to sweep across the Pacific once again at reasonably low latitudes, continuing the search for Terra Australis Incognita. By now it's summer again, of course, and so the conditions were... Well, look, not pleasant, but uh, maybe not as bad as they might have been otherwise. All these idiot egghead scientists that had proposed the existence of a, a southern continent, they suspected that it would come up a long way north, again, because of the whole balance thing. And so Cook, thankfully, didn't have to go too far south when searching for it, but he did dip down once again here and there to some very low latitudes, as low as the 71st parallel south on the 30th of January, 1774. But he couldn't go any further. The sea ice became rock solid at that point. And uh, here's, here's what's really funny about this whole situation, right? Cook was keen as hell to find this continent, to press on in the face of adversity, to do everything he humanly could to prove himself to history as a master explorer and navigator. 
But when he got stuck at the 71st parallel, here's what he wrote, right? I, who had ambition not only to go farther than anyone had been before, but as far as it was possible for man to go, was not sorry in meeting with this interruption. In other words, he was a very bloody glad to get out of the harsh conditions of the Antarctic Circle and return to a temperate climate. But here's what's sad about the situation. Once again, Cook had had some very bad luck in being sent to the Pacific to explore, as there's plenty of Antarctica above the 71st parallel. It's just all south of the Indian Ocean not the Pacific. So had he gone that far south in another part of the world, he would have bumped straight into Antarctica. But where he was sent to, the Pacific, it doesn't start, Antarctica doesn't start until a, bit, a little bit further south. And so Cook never managed to make it that far. Anyway, he did prove one thing. The southern continent was not as vast as first imagined. It didn't extend all that far north after all. So Cook, he uh, he chucked another Yui, he headed up north, and he headed, I'll tell you this, a long way north this time, almost all the way to the equator, in fact, as he headed back up, and then around west, back towards New Zealand. The resolution stopped in at Easter Island, Tonga, Vanuatu, New Caledonia, and Norfolk Island, before finally getting back to, to uh, Queen Charlotte Sound, or Totoranui. And after hanging out there for a while, Cook decided to strike out for home, but across the Pacific, once again, to Cape Horn at the southern tip of the Americas, because once again, he was going to circumnavigate the globe. He wasn't going to go back the way that he'd come. But the, the, the voyage back to Britain this time, unremarkable. The resolution made it across the Pacific, around Cape Horn and into the South Atlantic, where Cook once again tried to find Cape Circumcision or Terra Australis Incognita or just about bloody anything, mate. And he did have a bit of luck. He landed on on an island that he named the Isle of Georgia after King George II, still part of Britain today. It has a summer population of 32 people living on a research station. Never had an indigenous population because because it is too bloody cold. Uh, And Cook also discovered a new archipelago of islands running north-south near the South Georgia Island. And he named this this archipelago... Sandwichland. Sandwichland. What a place to live. He actually named them after the Lord of Sandwich, who was the first Lord of the Admiralty at the time, not because, you know, sandwich was sandwich was growing on trees, but imagine living in Sandwichland. Um, actually, no, don't, because the South Sandwich Islands, as they're known today, are absolutely horrible. Freezing cold, just like South Georgia, also still part of Britain today, but no one at all lives there. Too tiny, too cold. No, thank you. Eventually, however, Cook turned the ship north and made it home to Britain successfully, arriving on the 30th of July, 1775, three years and 19 days after departing all the way back in 1772. Once again, he had not lost a single man to scurvy. Turns out it is important to eat your fruit and veggies. Who knew? And once again... He was hailed as a hero, even more so this time, because on top of keeping his crew safe, he had done a terrific job of exploring and charting areas untouched by modern cartography. As you might expect from a navigator and surveyor of his calibre, Cook returned to Britain with exceptionally detailed and accurate maps of the seas that he'd explored. So accurate, in fact, so high quality were these maps and charts that sailors were still using them 
in the mid-20th century, Cook really was absolutely incredible at what he did. He was so, so talented when it came to exploration, navigation, charting, mapping, and all the rest of it. And in addition to this, I'll mention very briefly, Cook had tested the K1 chronometer extensively, and he praised it mightily as a navigational tool, which led directly to marine chronometers being adopted in more and more ships everywhere. However, he had not found the southern continent that he'd been sent to look for. But even this, even its absence was something of a discovery in and of itself. Many people changed their minds about Terra Australis Incognita altogether. They decided that it didn't exist after all, but not Cook. With remarkable prescience, Cook theorised that there is a tract of land near the pole, which is the source of most of the ice which is spread over this vast southern ocean. He was right, of course. There is land to the extreme south of the globe, further south than he managed to go on his voyage. But after he came back empty-handed, so to speak, interest in the question of the southern continent more or less dried up and people just kind of stopped looking for it for a while. Anyway, for these achievements on his second voyage, Cook was showered with adulation. Not only was he promoted by the Admiralty once again to captain He was made a fellow of the Royal Society. He was awarded its highest honour, the Copley Medal, for keeping his entire crew alive with his adoption of the latest scientific thinking on scurvy. He rubbed shoulders with the rich and famous. He was lauded in the British Parliament. He had a fancy portrait done. He just generally lived the high life as the closest thing that late 18th century Britain had to a rock star. However... There was a side to all this that Cook didn't like, because after his second voyage, he was actually forced into retirement by the British Admiralty. He was given a cushy posting, a firm handshake and a big thank you. And that was that. For about two years, because it wasn't long at all before he was back to sea, but this time for a completely different reason than the last two voyages. All the way back in 1745, the British Admiralty posted a huge cash reward for anyone who could discover the Northwest Passage. Even before this, explorers had sought a way to sail between the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans by sailing up past the northern extremes of the Americas, but no one had ever managed it. In 1775, the British Admiralty renewed their search and with a £20,000 prize up for grabs for anyone who could find the Northwest Passage, people started to get very interested indeed. Initially, the Admiralty were going to send a bloke named Charles Clerk to lead the latest Northwest Passage expedition, with Cook acting as a consultant during his retirement. But before long, they realised that they would be very foolish not to let Cook lead the expedition himself with Clerk under him. Cook was too skilled a captain and navigator, too experienced with long, arduous voyages of exploration to leave on the bench. And so Cook came out of retirement for one last job, except in this case, he was actually very keen to. He's not even 50. Plenty of life left in him. Can't wait to put out to sea once again. However, little did he know he would never return to Britain ever again. This third expedition would be his last. 
Cook's third voyage set sail on the 12th of July, 1776. He was once again in command of HMS Resolution, while Clerk commanded another ship, HMS Discovery. Now, quite interestingly, uh, aboard Cook's ship was a young fella named William Bly, who you might remember from episodes 46 and 47, Mutiny on the Bounty, and episode 179, The Rum Rebellion, Get Across and Bly, Certainly crops up all over the place. He got a, he got around a fair bit in the late 18th century, it seems. Anyway, as such a famous bloke, uh, everyone was very keen to know what Cook was up to with this voyage, and uh, the public were actually told a bit of a lie as he set off. Remember that bloke Omai I mentioned before, the uh, the fellow that Cook and Furno had met in Tahiti. Well, the reason given publicly for Cook's voyage was that Omai wanted to head back home after a couple of years of living it up in Britain, hanging out with all the rich and famous aristocrats who found him absolutely delightful, uh, even, met the, even met the king at one point, but uh, he's had enough of this apparently and he wants to head back to Tahiti. And so Cook, very generously, going to give him a lift. Cook uh, was actually going to do this. This was something that was planned as part of his voyage. But then after that, after Omo had been dropped off in Tahiti, the plan was to head up across the Pacific to modern-day Alaska and find a way through the Arctic Circle across to the Atlantic. So, off he goes, 12th of July, 1776, as I say, and Cook arrived in Cape Town at the southern end of Africa three months later. However, both the resolution and the discovery were leaking quite badly at this point, and so Cook pulled in for a pit stop. He had the ships recalked to fix the leaks and then set off again in December. They made good time across the Indian Ocean thanks to strong westerly winds. They stopped in at Van Diemen's Land or Tasmania to reprovision the ships and then continued on to New Zealand, pulling in once again at Queen Charlotte Sound or Totoranui on the 12th of February 1777. From there, however, Cook had quite a number of difficulties getting uh, to Tahiti to drop Omai off. He was blown about by the winds and ended up on the island of Mangaia, part of today's Cook Islands. Uh, Cook was the first European to visit these islands. And he also stopped in at the Friendly Isles, or Tonga, uh, staying there for a few months before finally setting off in July for Tahiti. And he got there this time on the 12th of August, 1777. It took 13 months to the day, but Omai was finally dropped off back in Tahiti safe and sound. Now, once again, in Tahiti, Cook didn't hurry to set sail. He actually remained there until December, sticking around for almost four months before finally setting off from Tahiti to the north to Hawaii. And if you know anything about Cook, you'll know that Hawaii is a very important place in his story. Cook was the first European to make formal contact with Hawaii and its people. He landed on the island of Kauai, met the indigenous people there, and then named the entire Hawaiian archipelago the Sandwich Islands. Again, more sandwiches, but obviously the name didn't stick this time. Cook and his crew got on reasonably well with the locals, I'm pleased to say, although they, of course, ripped them off when trading, giving them useless trinkets and beads and other rubbish in exchange for useful things from the Hawaiians. But still, no one was killed yet, and relations were friendly enough. Cook actually stuck around for a couple of weeks. But then, as you might already know, on the 2nd of February, 1778, things changed when Cook left. He left Hawaii. He sailed off. See you blokes later, he says. Back in the resolution, the adventure tagging along behind him. Off he goes. Some of you weren't expecting that, I know, but don't worry. We will we'll get there in the end. Anyway, <clears throat> from Hawaii... 
Cook sailed to the west coast of North America to the Spanish colony of Alta California and continued north up the coast, of course, making maps as he went. He eventually made landfall in modern-day Oregon in the United States uh, today because of some foul weather. And would you like to know what he named where he landed? Perhaps there are some Oregonians listening who have visited Cape Foulweather. It is still called that today. What an imaginative name. Cook's going around naming things after the first thing that popped into his head. I'll tell you what, I would have given things a little bit... No, actually, I could definitely see myself naming things after, like, sandwiches. I I could definitely see that. Anyway, Cook continued north, uh, pulling into a cove that he named... Oh, my goodness, another stupid name here. Ship Cove. Where did he think of such a name? Uh, it's, it's now actually called Resolution Cove, uh, found on Bly Island, so you can still tell where these names came from. But uh, anyway, there in this cove, Cook and his crew met and traded with the indigenous people that lived, uh, lived in a small village there, Uquat. And here, interestingly, the locals actually ripped the visitors off, not the other way around. They weren't taken in by the beads and the trinkets and the other rubbish that the British had. They instead insisted on things that were actually worth something like metal tools in exchange for their furs and their pelts. Nice to see the free hand of the market favouring the indigenous for a change. Get it up, you cook old son. You want them, you want them sea otter pelts? You better cough up for a mate anyway. After a month or so in Resolution Cove, Cook left in late April and continued north, continuing to map the coastline as he headed up towards the Bering Strait that today separates Russia and Alaska. Uh, and the maps that he made of the northwest coast of North America were the first of their kind. They had This area had never been mapped before. And these maps connected the missing parts of the maps that existed between Russia in the east and the Spanish colonies in the Americas. Anyway, Cook sailed through the Bering Strait in August 1778 and was intent upon finding this northwest passage, a way that would take him through to the Atlantic Ocean. But of course, it was no good. And he was forced to turn back. After reaching the 70th parallel north, the way forward was blocked by sea ice. Cook sought alternative routes, zipping to the west to try to find a way through the ice, but it was no good. And as the northern hemisphere's summer was coming to an end, so too was any hope that the ice would recede. And so by the time we get to September, Cook admits defeat. Without having found the northwest passage, Cook decided to turn the ship around and sail back south towards Hawaii in September 1778. His search had come to naught. Well, in terms of the objective he'd been given, I mean, once again, he'd had a profound impact on the world in undertaking his third voyage, even if he didn't find the Northwest Passage. Just as with his first and second voyages, it was the other things he did, the other things that took place as part of these expeditions that went on to have such huge historical impacts, things like the maps he made and, of course, the interactions he had with local indigenous populations, which brings us very neatly to Cook's return to Hawaii after sailing south out of the Bering Sea. His timing was pretty good. He arrived back in Hawaii during the time of the of a festival for the god Lono, the Hawaiian god of fertility and agriculture. And the Hawaiians, as a result, were all in a pretty good mood. They're partying, having a great time, and they welcome Cook and all of his crew back very warmly. Now, there is a story about the Hawaiians uh, deifying Cook, considering him an incarnation of their god Lono, 
But this is almost certainly untrue. In fact, it was probably made up by none other than William Bly, who really doesn't seem to have made a single good decision in all the episodes we've talked about him. Anyway, even if he wasn't thought of as a god, Cook was still treated as a guest of honour by the Hawaiians, initially at least. But as time wore on, the Hawaiians were less and less keen on Cook doing things like harvesting wood from their burial grounds, for instance, or making false accusations of theft. When a small boat went missing, Clerk, the captain of the Discovery, he accused the Hawaiians of stealing it, and this did not go down well with the locals, especially when Clerk then found the boat thoroughly unstolen. Clerk had been extremely rude to the Hawaiians in making this accusation, and the wood thing hadn't gone to, down too well either. And then all these, you know, on top of that, there's all the rip-offs that the British are doing while they're trading. So it was time to go. Everyone knew it. The British had worn out their welcome. Both sides were getting pretty bloody sick of each other. And so after a couple of weeks in Hawaii, the resolution and the discovery set sail and left Hawaii once again. Only to return five days later after sailing straight into a gale that was so strong it damaged the mast of the resolution. No one was happy about this. The Hawaiians were sick of the British. The British weren't getting on with the Hawaiians. And there is a lot of tension in the air as Cook's crew attempt to repair this broken mast. But then the Hawaiians decided to test their luck and see what would actually happen if they stole a boat or two from the British. They nicked two longboats, quite openly, and Cook had to respond. There was a way that European explorers generally handled situations like this. This was the technique that they used to get Indigenous peoples around the world to to return stolen property. They took hostages. They would kidnap some of the locals and only release them when whatever had been stolen was returned. And Cook decided that he would kidnap, of all people, the Ali'i Nui of the island, the supreme monarch, Kalianu Opu'u. And this, I don't need to tell you, proved to be a bad move, to say the very least. On the morning of the 14th of February, 1779, Cook marched down to Kalani Opa'u's dwelling with a contingent of armed marines. They woke the king and told him that he had to come with them. Kalani Opa'u went with them. They weren't threatening him at this stage, just urging him to come, and so he went along. But as more and more Hawaiians saw what was happening, a crowd began to follow Cook and Kalani Opa'u and the marines. These Hawaiians were protesting. They were calling out for Kalani Opu to come back. And finally, when the king approached the ship, his wife, Kanakapolai, finally got through to him, shouting out that he was being kidnapped. Kalani Opu realised that he was indeed being abducted by Cook, that he didn't have the option to just turn around and march back to his people, and so he began to resist. He threw himself down on the sand, sat down on the beach, in full view of the, by now, thousands of Hawaiians who had gathered to see what was happening to their ali'i nui. Cook attempted to pull Kalani Opu to his feet, while the Marines raised their guns at the assembled crowd, but then... Two young chieftains sprang forward with Kanakapolai to try to get Kalani Opu'u away from Cook. Then, in fighting for control of Kalani Opu'u, Cook raised his sword 
and struck one of the young chieftains, Kana'ina, with the flat of his blade. And that, as they say, was that. Kana'ina smacked Cook across the head with his club, and then a bloke named Nua, Kalaniopu's personal attendant, drew a dagger. A dagger that Nua had traded off of Cook's crew on Cook's first visit to Hawaii and stabbed Cook in the chest with it. Cook fell face first into the shallow water there on the shore as a full-on melee erupted on the beach between the Hawaiians and the British. Six of the British were killed, as were a number of Hawaiians, I, I don't know exactly how many, as the British retreated back to the resolution without Cook, who lay dead, face down in the surf, killed by a dagger that had been brought on his own ship all the way to the other side of the world just to be plunged into his chest. Cook's body was retrieved by the Hawaiians from the water and was given a full set of Hawaiian funeral rites before his bones were restored to his former crew who were still anchored offshore, repairing their damaged mast. And then Cook was laid to rest once again, once and for all, not just one funeral, but two for him. He was given a burial at sea by the British sailors. And that was the end of Captain James Cook. Despite all the remarkable contributions he made to the world with his masterful navigational skills and his mapping of uncharted regions and his enthusiastic dedication to scientific progress, he died as a consequence of his disrespect for the indigenous people of the lands that he visited. An all-too-fitting fate, many would say, for the vanguard of British imperialism throughout the Pacific. Just as he had been with his visit to Australia, Cook was the forerunner of British colonial expansion in Hawaii and other places throughout the Pacific. The world would never be the same. Cook's third expedition continued without him. Clerk took command, but he also died before he made it back to Britain. He died of tuberculosis. And instead, two men named John Gore and James King led the two ships all the way back to Britain along very well-established trade routes across the Indian Ocean and then up through the Atlantic before being blown so far off course that they actually landed in Orkney, islands to the north of Scotland rather than further south. But news of the deaths of both Cook and Clerk had beaten them home and so it was a much more subdued reception that the crew got this time around when compared with the conclusion of Cook's other voyages. So now, with the story of Captain James Cook told from beginning to end, what can we say about this man? As little as I think of colonialism and imperialism, I'm not prepared to just categorically label Cook as irredeemably evil. But nor am I going to take the coward's way out and talk about him just being a product of his time. In my view, the truth is far more nuanced than that. It is a very difficult thing to fairly evaluate the legacies of people like Captain Cook. On the positive side of the ledger, Cook explored and charted the Pacific like no one had before him, greatly expanding the sum of human knowledge as he mapped out regions unknown to modern cartography and modern science. 
He facilitated the study of flora and fauna. He discovered previously unknown islands. He created first-rate navigational charts that were used for over a century after his death. And these charts aided a new generation of explorers and traders as they set out across the globe, which would ultimately see the Pacific incorporated into the global economy. And now we're skirting between the positive and the negative. But back to the positive. Cook was also a man of science. As I've said, his expeditions enormously increased our overall understanding of the planet on which we lived, whether it was botany or geology or zoology or astronomy or who knows what else. Cook's voyage has unlocked whole new fields of study to modern science. From his study of the transit of Venus in 1769 to the thousands upon thousands of botanical samples that were studied after being brought back with him, Cook's voyages forever changed our understanding of Earth and its place in the solar system. He also pioneered and helped to normalise new ideas in the maritime industry, never losing a man to scurvy, making use of the latest technology such as chronometers, and generally being ready to come down on the side of progress. This also greatly influenced the next generation of explorers like him. As I've mentioned, things like scurvy, a distant afterthought in the mirror of human history. How many lives did Cook save by so emphatically showing us how a ship's crew could be kept healthy and safe? But the negative side of the ledger is far from empty. While the majority of Cook's encounters with Indigenous people across the Pacific were peaceful and friendly, some were violent and most involved at a bare minimum economic exploitation. His exploration of the Pacific opened it up to European colonisation, which brought with us the march of so-called civilization and all the subjugation, theft, violence, and murder that came with it. As the British expanded their sphere of influence into the Pacific, their empire rose to become a global superpower in the 19th century. Their colonies spread far and wide, wealth pouring back into the old country as the people and resources of these far-flung colonies were exploited. Colonisation is an extremely complex issue to tackle, let alone fairly evaluate, but it is not hard to realise or acknowledge the devastatingly negative impact that it had on Indigenous populations, like the ones Cook visited and made contact with. How much personal responsibility does he bear for this? How much should we blame him? I don't know. There are things about Cook that I admire. His devotion to scientific advancement and learning, his dedication to the safety and health of his crew, his willingness and enthusiasm to chase down the horizon in adverse conditions. But there are things about him that, of course, I greatly disapprove of. His disregard for the rights of Indigenous people, his readiness to resort to violence against them, his enabling of the spread of imperialism. Is it possible to be a villain and a hero at the same time? Again, I don't know. But I do know that it feels hollow, reductive, and almost performative to simply brand Cook as being just one or the other. Cook changed the world for better and for worse. And maybe that's about as definitive as we can get. 
when deciding what his ultimate legacy is. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Captain James Cook from Go to Woe, his first, second, and third voyage, all gotten across, I suppose we could say. Uh, thanks for listening to another episode of Half Fast History. I want to remind you, of course, of all of the boring housekeeping stuff, such as the fact that the website, Half Fast History, has everything you need to know about the show. You can find old episodes. Actually, no, it doesn't, does it? Because Quarter Arts History isn't published there. It has almost everything you could possibly need about the show. It does have links to subscribe on in places like Spotify and, uh, and iTunes where you can access Quarter Arts History. But there also you'll find links to the merch shop if you want to support the show directly. And of course, the Patreon. Where would this podcast be without the patrons? Probably, I don't know, 200 episodes fewer, I imagine. Probably would have given up on it a long, long time ago were it not for the jingle in my pocket brought about by our fine, exalted patrons supporting me each and every week and being rewarded for it with all sorts of exclusive behind-the-scenes content, show notes, which are very useful as study guides, I will add, um, uncut episodes, which are not useful for anything other than if you really want to hear what it sounds like if I am burping a lot, um, and, uh, of course, early access to episodes as well, if uh, that tickles your fancy, and, needless to say, ad-free listening. Uh, so thank you once again to all the patrons uh, supporting the show, and thank you to all the people out there spreading the good word of half Earth history. You are... Each and every one of you deeply appreciated for proselytizing the good word of this silly Tin Pot History podcast. So thanks so much for doing it. Anyway, this week, of course, going to close out with a question posed on Reddit. We've talked a lot about the exploration of the Pacific and many of the archipelagos there within. And this one comes to us from Abu Ben Adam and asks a very important question about some of these archipelagos. <clears throat> Where, in relation to Polynesia, Melanesia and Micronesia, is amnesia? And why did explorers keep forgetting to put it on their maps? 